Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. So as uh, most of you that are regular attenders of our church know, we've been in a series called DNA, where we've been looking at kind of the spiritual identity of our church, the spiritual identity of Grace Harvest Church. And last week, Pastor Raul spoke on the topic of Grace Harvest Church is a presence-seeking church. And when we speak of presence, we mean the presence of God, that we're a church that seeks the presence of God. We want His face. We want to know Him. We want Him to be welcome among us. We want Him to move among us and change lives. We want to experience God, not just intellectually, not just in our minds, but in our emotions, in our will, in in our imaginations. We want God to move in every part of our being and make Himself real to us. Amen? Amen. And he brought out the idea last week that if we are to seek God's presence, which the Bible shows us that the word for presence throughout the Bible is his face, if we are to seek his face, his presence, we must humble ourselves, turn from our wicked ways, and pray for God to forgive us and restore our land. Amen. He he got into 2 Chronicles 7.14. This week, I want to continue on the topic of Grace Harvest Church as a presence-seeking church. My message today is about how God seeks us before we ever seek His presence. He seeks us out. He pursues us. He chases us. And I have a key scripture text I'd like to show to you, and it's Genesis 28, 16. And this is in the New Living Translation. And it's a really powerful text, and I'm going to share the story around this text. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take this text, and then I'm going to share the context of the text. I'm going to share everything in front of it and after it in order to show us God's heart. And so this is what it says in Genesis 28, 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. You know, God is often personally present in our lives, but we're not aware. We miss His presence. We're not able to recognize it. I like what it says. It says, and Jacob awoke from his sleep. How many of you know in your own life that a lot of times you're just kind of passing through life asleep? You're unaware of what's going on. And it takes, in Jacob's case, it took a dream. It takes something from God to awaken you out of a state of sleep and to show you that he has been there the whole time and you didn't even know it. I don't know about you, but that's really encouraging to me. Um, week and a half ago, we were on vacation and we were in Florida with another couple for, uh, that are pastors as well, and we were hanging out there in Florida. And when we first arrived, I told them, I said, you know, I, you guys need to know something. Every time I travel nationally or internationally, almost every time, I meet people, I run into people that I know. And it doesn't matter where I am. I can be on the other side of the world and I'll run into somebody I know. And, and I told them, I said, I feel, I feel almost like, you know, it's... I told him this later after it happened. I told him, I said, I feel like it's almost like God, you know, showing up in my life and and letting me know I'm with you. 
right? Wherever you go, I've already ordered your life. I'm going before you. And so, you know, we were there, and we'd been there about a week or so, and we went to an alligator farm. And we're kicking back at this alligator farm, and I was so glad I told him this ahead of time. We're kicking back at this alligator farm. We're eating. It's in the city of St. Augustine. And I look over, and all of a sudden, I see a guy that I know from Grace Harvest Church that moved to North Carolina in early March. And I looked up and saw him, and I said, hold on a second. And I ran over to where he was, and we talked for a minute, and we got a photo together. And then on the way home, we got stuck in the Dallas airport an extra day, an extra night. We, got, we, we didn't stay there, thank God, but, um, but we missed our connection. And so we're in the Dallas airport, and all of a sudden I look over and I see a guy that, le- that left our church about 10 years ago to move to Spokane, and I haven't seen him in about a decade, and I ran into him at the airport. And I turned to this couple, and they're like, if you hadn't have said it, I wouldn't have believed it. Twice on the same trip. And, and what, it, what it illustrated for me, because, for instance, the, the one at the alligator farm, the mathematical probability, if you start doing, you know, if you start doing probabilities here, we're talking infinitesimal. The chances of that happening. And here's the thing. If I had turned and been talking to one of the group and not turned around at that moment and looked out over the mass of people that were walking around everywhere, he could have been in the park the whole time and I would have never seen him and then left and we would have never had that encounter. But I happened to look up and see him and then I chased him down. I wasn't going to let that moment get away. And it made me aware once again that God is at work in my life. Is it work in your life? Behind the scenes, so many times he's doing things that you're not even aware of. He's working in family members that you're praying for. He's working in impossible circumstances in your workplace. He's working all the time in your life behind the scenes, and you're not even aware. I like it when he makes us aware, don't you? Many times in our own lives, and I'm going to show you this in the story today, uh, because of our background, our upbringing, our own sin, fears we have, anxieties we have, because of so many different things like that, we are often kept unaware of God's personal presence. As we learned last week, God is everywhere present, that's known as His omnipresence, but His personal manifest presence is when he pulls back the veil over our minds and makes himself known. Today we're going to learn about two brothers and the way God pulled back the veil in one of their lives. We're going to learn about a guy named Esau and a guy named Jacob. So I'm going to start by by getting into Genesis chapter 25 and verses 27 through 34. I want to give you a little family background. I want you to see the dynamics in these brothers' lives, okay? so And I'm going to title this part, Esau the despiser and Jacob the deceiver. Isn't that, isn't that a great story right there? Um, Esau the despiser. These are some good guys, huh? And Jacob the deceiver. And I want you to see something here. And, and what, we, what we'll find out in this text is about a trickster, about a, a guy who's a stinker, but also about a brother who despised his place. And so look with me at Genesis 25, verses 27 through 34. Again, I'm in the New Living Translation. Look what it says. It says, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. Do we not have that text? 
Uh, thank you. Beautiful. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau. Now, Isaac's dad, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. But Jacob, excuse me, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his, his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. See, there were twins, and Esau came out in front of him. Trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me right now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. And this is a powerful story that illustrates to us how easy it is for us to miss our place in God's plan and miss what God is doing in our lives. And I, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, personality differences and parental favoritism led to a lot of problems in this family. See, Esau was an outdoorsman. Jacob was a homebody who liked to cook. By the way, in neither case is their manhood either exalted or despised. Can I make that clear? Now, dad liked Esau better because Esau was an outdoorsman, and mom liked Jacob better, but there's nothing in the text that says that God favored one of them because one of them was more outdoorsy and the other not so much. But we do learn that God, in his sovereignty, favored Jacob. So let's continue to, to look at, at a couple of things here. Esau was favored by his dad, Jacob by his mother. Esau was more led by his appetites, his passions. I got to eat now. And Jacob was more motivated by his ambitions. These differences caused rivalries and problems. And I think the beautiful part of the story for me is that we find out the Bible people are broken people just like us. The people in the scripture, listen, if you're looking in the Bible for examples of, of how you can become this great person you want to become, let me just say to you that the Bible is mostly full of really poor examples who find a really awesome God. Amen. Or I should say, a God finds them, the God, the true God finds them and makes something of their lives in the midst of their brokenness. Amen? And then Jacob took advantage of his brother's weakness. And we see this over and over again. Esau despised his place in the family, and he paid the price. Jacob knew that Esau was led by his appetites, and he waited for a moment of weakness to take advantage of his brother. Esau valued stew above his family status and place. You see, Abraham was the father of our faith, the father of what would become Israel. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac, who was called Laughter, and the fulfillment of a promise from God. 
And God said he was going to do this amazing thing through this family. And then Isaac had these two sons, Esau and Jacob. And this family line was to be a blessing to the entire world. But Esau didn't care. All he cared about was his momentary passion, what he wanted, what fulfilled his desires, his base hungers. He didn't care about what was really important. He didn't value his place with God. He didn't value the presence of God above his own passions. Really important for us to see this. And then as the story goes on in the 27th chapter, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but we see the next stage in this deception, but also in this devaluing of the family place. And, and, and what happens is Rebecca, mom, and her son Jacob, whom she favors, end up deceiving Isaac, the dad, and stealing Esau's blessing. So in that culture, when a father was nearing the end of his life, and it looked like you know, he was about to die, or he knew he was getting close to his death, before that happened, he would gather in his sons, and he would bless each of them. And we see this later. Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons later in his life, toward the end of his life. So Esau wants to bless his firstborn. He wants to bless Esau. Excuse me. Isaac, thank you. Isaac wants to bless Esau, right? So he, he's, he's going to call him in and put his hands on him and bless him with the blessings of the firstborn. But he's going blind, and he can't really see. And so Rebecca catches wind of the fact that he's going to do this with his son. Isaac's going to bless Esau, and so she... She tells her son, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. Um, when your brother goes out to hunt wild game, because, because dad, dad said, listen, Esau, I want you to go out. I want you to hunt some wild game. Bring back that, that wild game. Prepare it in a meal for me. And after we eat that meal, because I love your cooking and I love your wild game, I'm going to bless you. Well, Rebecca hears this. And so while he's out hunting, she gets her son. She gets Jacob. And she, she puts some fur on his arms from one of their slain lambs. That's interesting, covered with the lamb, right? She puts some fur on his arms and she makes him smell like the outdoors and then she cooks a meal and she gives it to her, her son and she says, hurry up, go in there and pretend like you're Esau. So Jacob comes in and he says, hey dad, I'm here. I got your meal for you. And he says, is that you? You're, you, you, I, I, I have the smell of my son Esau, but that's the voice of Jacob. Come closer to me. So he comes closer and he touches him. He touches his arms. He smells him. He gets up close to him and he realizes, well, I guess this is Esau. He eats the meal and then he lays his hand on his son and he blesses him. And he blesses him with all these firstborn blessings and he prophesies over him. He gives him the word of the Lord for his family line and what will happen. And the things he says to Jacob are about their future and about what God's going to do and how the world's going to be changed through them. And then, you know, after that, Jacob leaves really quickly and Esau comes back and he's got the meal ready and he comes into his dad and he says, dad, here you go. Here's the meal. I'm ready to receive my blessing. And, and, and Isaac says, what? Wait, is that you? Esau, wait, no, your brother must have come in and deceived me and, and said that he was you and I already blessed him and I gave him the firstborn blessing. I can't take it back. And Esau says, Dad, please, you gotta have something for me. You gotta have something to me, for me. And he says, okay, but it's not the firstborn. And he prophesies over him. You're gonna serve your brother. You're gonna be lesser than your brother. Your family line's gonna be lesser. I mean, it is a brutal, brutal scene. And so what happens after that? Well, 
as you can imagine, in these kind of family dynamics, Jacob has to run for his life. He has to flee. And we see this in Genesis 27, 41 through 45. Look at it in the text with me. It says, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing and Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah heard about Esau's plans. So she sent for Jacob and told him, listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. So listen carefully, my son. Get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you've done to him, I'll send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? So that's the, that's the context, okay? Before we get into the, the presence section I wanted you to see, I wanted you to get a picture of the family context and what's going on and all the dynamics. And that takes us now to how God revealed his presence to a running, fearful, and exhausted man named Jacob. We're going to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. Look at it with me. It says, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, do we have that text? Um, I'm in Genesis 28, 10 through 17. We'll start over here. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against, and he laid down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway. Think about this. He dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you were lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. Listen to this. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Now listen to this, verse 15. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Listen to that. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. Okay, so Jacob has this encounter with God, and I, I just want to walk through several things in that encounter that really apply to our lives, and I want you to think about your own life right now in God's presence. First of all, you have to be pretty exhausted to use a stone for a pillow. Look, we know Jacob was a homebody. It was Esau that liked to camp outdoors. Jacob loved to be home. And even though the ancient world, you know, didn't have the comforts we have, don't deceive yourself and think that these people were all really rugged people. They liked pillows. We know from, from archaeological things that have been uncovered. We know from, from um, 
reliefs on walls and art from the ancient world, we know that people liked, you know, feathered beds. They liked soft beds. They liked fabrics. And we know that they liked pillows too. So Jacob is running for his life. And the only thing he can find for a pillow is a stone. Exhaustion had set in from running and he didn't care. And then you can imagine, he, he must have been pretty afraid and anxious. He didn't know whether or not his brother was pursuing him or not. You know, he, I'm sure he, he, he thought, well, he'll wait until the time of mourning is over. But the reality is, is once Esau found out that he'd run, he didn't know whether or not Esau was going to get so angry he was going to chase him. So he's running like crazy. And, you know, if you think about it, Jacob was a schemer. He was a pretty bad guy at this point. He had done really bad things to his brother. This is the man, think about that. This is the man that the nation of Israel came out of. Later, his actual name is changed to Israel, and that's where we get the name Israel. So here he is, this deceiver, this liar who's done bad things to his brother. This guy is God's chosen instrument to bless the entire world. Any of you sitting here today feel like God can't use me because I've messed up in the past or I got a bad family history or I've done some things I'm really ashamed of? Anybody other than me have that kind of backstory? You don't have to raise your hand. And yet, this is the one that God chooses. This is Israel. And it's the same with us. You know, Jesus died on a Roman cross, He died for the sins of the world. Not for people who have their act together. Not for people who have it all figured out. He died for sick people, for sinners. He said of himself, I haven't come for the well. I haven't come for people who got it all figured out. I've come for those who recognize that they need a physician. They need a healer. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's why Jesus came for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen. He came to pursue us, to chase us down because we were so messed up. Some of you were a lot worse than Jacob. Some of you got backgrounds in deception and lying and manipulation that go way beyond anything Jacob did. And yet, you're here. And you know the love of God. And you know the grace and the mercy of God. Am I talking to anybody? See, God chose Jacob out of pure grace. A lot of people say the Old Testament's the law and it's about the commandments, and it's about trying to be good enough for God, and the New Testament is all about Jesus and the cross and grace. That is not true. The entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is the story of grace. It's the story of God's pursuit of sinners and his redemption of sinners and everything. The Old Testament redemption uh, through the sacrificial system and the law, all of it points to grace. All of it points to our inability to ever be good enough for God and God therefore, you know, compensating, more than compensating, chasing us down and finding us in our weakness and our sinfulness and redeeming us. Amen. Jacob was chosen out of pure grace. And then God made all these covenant promises to Jacob. And, and, and to his family for eternity, think about it. God's promises and presence always go together. You ever noticed in the Bible when God shows up and makes himself known, when he does this act of self-revealing, when he pulls the veil back and he says, here I am, he almost always follows it was with, excuse me, and here's what I'm going to do through you and with your family. 
And the beauty is God is multi-generational. He's already choosing your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. He's already made provision for them. He's going into the future, even though they might be deceivers, even though they might be liars, even though they're going to fail themselves, even though they're going to make their own mistakes. He's gone ahead already, and he's working circumstances out to redeem even their failures and their sin. That's the beauty of this story. And by the way, when you go read about what happened to Jacob, it's actually kind of humorous. And I'm not going to get into it, but he goes to work for his uncle Laban. And Laban is a worse deceiver than him. And Laban's always messing with him. He's cheating him. He's stealing from him. And, and Jacob is under Laban's tutelage for a long time, over a decade. And during that time period, God's just like, see what it feels like? I'm going to deal with that in your heart. And finally, he gets it out of Jacob. He uses the process of his suffering, of his being away from his family, of his rejection from his brother and the hatred of his brother. He uses all of it to redeem Jacob and to get to the things inside of his heart that are wrong. So listen, if you're here today and you feel like, man, you don't know, my story's too broken. I've messed up too bad. My past is too messy my family line is so screwed up. You have no idea the kind of home I was raised in. I have good news for you. You are a candidate for redemption. You are a candidate for God taking a broken life and turning things around, taking what's twisted and making it straight and doing a beautiful thing out of your life and out of your family. Am I talking to anybody? You know the greatest promise that God gave Jacob? The promise of his personal presence. Think about that. God's personal presence to Jacob was the greatest promise of all. Well, this is what he says in verse 15. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I finish giving you everything I have promised you. Think about that. Jesus made the same promise to his followers after his death and resurrection. You have the same promise in your life. What's he say in Matthew 28, 20? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's talking to his disciples and anyone who will believe in him. I am with you even to the end of the age. Amen. God's personal presence is with us, and often we aren't aware of it. Verse 16, he woke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. In the uh, true, complete story of Mark Hanks, we learn this. Elvis Presley used to frequent a place called the Little Thompson Steakhouse in Tennessee. He was good friends with the owner who used to give him free food before he was famous. One night, when he was at the height of his fame, the steakhouse held the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. A large crowd arrived, including Elvis Presley himself. You ready for this? Elvis decided to take part in the contest, and he sat quietly at the back of the, of the barbecue place. Elvis said confidently, I'm going to crush this. Lil, the, the man who ran the joint, was worried the place would go crazy when everybody realized it was Elvis. There was no need. He sang, love me tender, to polite applause, and came in third place in the contest. <laughs> it's a true story. See, sometimes 
God comes in a distressing disguise. Remember Matthew 25? At the end of time, all the sheep and the goats are gathered. And Jesus begins to go through them and separate the sheep from the goats. And as he does, something interesting happens. He, you know, he says, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I needed water, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the, the sheep say, when did we do these things? And, and he basically says, in as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. What, what's Jesus saying? And the same thing goes with the goats. What, what's he saying? He's saying that many times God comes to us in forms we don't normally recognize. He comes to us at moments in our lives we don't recognize. He comes to, a, to us in a distressing disguise. And he does that that our hearts might be tested. What are we looking for? See, some of you right now in your lives, you may not realize it, but God is showing up every day and you think God left you. You think he's moved on from you. That's why, you know, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus isn't talking about a state that happens to us after we die in the Beatitudes. He's talking to us about a present reality. That God has the ability to change the way we see and purify our view so that everywhere we look, we see the activity of God and we recognize the presence of God. And when we begin to recognize the presence of God in people, even in people we don't agree with or people not like us, see, that's the problem. We can turn off. We can put filters over our mind. We can blind ourselves because it doesn't fit our pattern. We put God in a box. And I hear people talking about doing that all the time. Don't put God in a box. He can do whatever he wants to do. And they usually mean miraculous things. But what about the simple and the common things? What about coming to us in the face of a child? What about coming to us in the face of a homeless person? What about coming to us in ways that we don't like? See, that's the reality. And when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, that's what he's addressing. He's addressing the fact that we've got our prejudices that blind us to God's presence in our lives. He comes to us in a distressing disguise. We have to recognize him when he shows up, amen? And then we learn that that place, God's presence was there and it brought about that place being called Bethel and being a place of worship. It's still his house, it's still the gateway of heaven. And that his personal presence will always lead us. And this is where I'm going to finish. And I have one more text of scripture to read. But I want you to see this. God's personal presence will always lead us to a deeper commitment. And this is where I'm going to put it now in your court. This is how we respond when the presence of God comes to us. Look at verses 18 through 22. Do we have that? Do we have verses 18 through 22? There on the, one of the last points. In the New Living Translation, it says this, The next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Listen to this. Then he poured olive oil all over the stone. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Although it was previously called Luz. I like Bethel better than Luz. How about you? I'm going to Luz. Okay. He named the place Bethel and, and, and was called Luz. And then Jacob made this vow. And look at what he does here. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me food and clothing, 
And if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. That looks like an awful lot of bargaining, doesn't it? It's a normal vow in that time, believe it or not. And then look what he says. And if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. I want you to notice what Jacob does. When we're impacted by love, when we're impacted by a life-changing experience and presence, we want to make vows and commitments. It's true in human relationships, and it's true with God. The love of the cross makes us want to commit to Jesus. I want you to think about this. Some of you have grown up in religious backgrounds, maybe went to church growing up, but you've never actually had an encounter with God. God's not real to you. He's not a real person. And so the idea of making deep commitments to God is kind of foreign to you. Some of you maybe had that background. And then something happened in your life. You hit a low point, you hit a dark point, or God just showed up in a way you never expected. And you had this encounter with Christ. And if you're being honest, remember this, when you had that encounter and you experienced love and forgiveness and you knew that now you were okay with God and you were no longer separate, no longer an enemy, and you came to that point in your life where it was like, okay, I'm ready now. I'm ready to make vows. I'm ready to make commitments. That's what we do. When our lives have been changed, we make commitments. That's why lovers want to marry, make commitments, move in together. You ever thought about that? Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't get married and have a marriage covenant, you want to make a commitment to that person. And that's what we're always looking for, right? We want our life gets rocked. When I met Peggy, she so captivated me that it was like, I'm not wasting any time. This one ain't getting away, right? She's not getting away. She's took the bait. It's me. No, just kidding. And I want to put a ring on it, and I want to seal the deal, and I want her to be mine. I'm ready to make a commitment of my life to her. Why? Because love had changed me. I saw a person that had changed me. When Jesus Christ made himself real to me, it was like natural for me to be like, What do you want me to do, God? I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll make any vow to you. And that's what Jacob's doing. Jacob has been rocked by the love of God. He's met this God who opened the heavens to him and has said, this is now my dwelling place. And he wants to make commitments. And so look at the things he says. The first thing he did is he set up a memorial pillar. And that meant I will remember. That's what a memorial pillar is. I will remember. It's there. It will be seen by generations to come. I poured oil on it. It's anointed. It's set apart. I will remember. Secondly, he made a vow. I am committed. I am committed. Have you, have you ever said, I'm committed to you, Jesus? Thirdly, he said, God will be my God. What did he say there? This is a personal relationship. It's one thing when a person says, the Lord Jesus. It's another thing when the person says, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? There's something personal. So he's saying this is a personal relationship. This place is called Bethel. It will be God's house of worship. What's he saying there? God has a place of worship. God has a place that we've set aside for him that belongs to him. And when we come back to this place, we're going to remember him here. And lastly, I'll give a tenth of all my possessions. Isn't it interesting? He ends with that one. I'll give back to God a portion of what he gave to me. You see, one of the things that I've recognized over the years, whether it's time, talents, 
or treasures, one of the things I've recognized over the years is that when people are reticent about giving, whether it's giving you know, tithes and offerings at their church or to somebody in need or their time, giving their time to the needs and helping of other people or their treasures, you know, I mean, or their talents. You know, I want to I give a portion of what I'm able to do to God's purpose and to help other people. When people are reticent of that, all it demonstrates is a lack of a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ because there's a natural response for God so loved the world that he gave. And Christians, when they become impacted by who he is, we, we want to give. We give back to God. It's a natural response. Commitments deepen. You go further than you've ever gone before. And you're not concerned about yourself primarily. You're concerned about pleasing him. That's what Jacob's doing. He's saying, God, if you'll be my God and you'll do these things you promised, you spoke to me, you take care of my family and do all these things. Because you're going to do all these things, I just want you to know I'm in it too, Lord. I'm going to give these things back to you and you're going to be my God. This is going to be your place. I'm committed to you and I'm going to give back a portion, a small portion, a tenth. I'm going to give one tenth of everything you give me back to you. And there was a covenant. There was a relationship. So I love this. Because what we see in this text is that even when we've messed up so many things because of our past sins, think about it, Jacob did not deserve to have that visitation. I hear people talk like, I want a visitation from the Lord. I must not be doing enough right. I must not be fasting. I must not be praying. I must not be doing enough right. And, and sure, it's time. there's times to do those things. But it's not about you and all your efforts to get God to come to you. God is sovereign. He does what he wants to do. I know people, me being one of them, who were lost sinners who deserve no visitation, who deserve rejection and damnation, and instead what did they get? Grace, mercy, and love, and God chased me down and rescued me, not because I did something to make myself shiny and good for him, but because he's good, and he's God, and he is grace personified and love personified. So even when we mess up our lives with sin issues, God's with us and for us. God's promise of his personal pre presence is the greatest promise in the Bible. He pursues us and he meets us in our times of personal crisis. This was a crisis. God is present even when we don't recognize him. When he shows up, your life is changed and you're ready to make deeper commitments. Amen.